Well, um, make sure you've got your Bibles open uh, to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And as I say, we're in chapter 11. And uh, uh, I was calling it Communion 101. But let me just tell you what's going on because we have so many visitors and maybe you don't know. Uh, we teach through the Bible here, but in sp- specifically what I'm doing now is I'm teaching through all of the, uh, we call it the writings of Paul. Even though Paul didn't really write much of anything, he had somebody they would meet in a room. He had a guy that was a, called an amanuensis, like a scholar who had scrolls and really understood how to write down the, the grammar and all of that from what Paul was saying. And so we're sort of following Paul through these writings that were on scrolls that were given to the churches that he had visited and that he was over. And uh, then we're going all the way through Paul's writing, starting at 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to end by doing the book of Romans, if I'm still alive at that time. And so we'll, uh, that's, that's the way we're going, so you'll understand it. The sermon this morning starts at verse 17 and goes to verse 34, which ends chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, and it is about the Lord's supper or the communion service, or there's some people have one word for it. The word is Eucharist. It's actually an awesome word. The word in Greek means thanksgiving. And so I'm going to start with a question. The question is, what is the central idea or the, uh, the defining symbol or the main purpose of Christianity? That's the question. Jesus himself gave us the answer. It's found in John chapter 17, verse 3, the prayer that Jesus prayed just before he went to the cross. And one verse reads this way. This is a prayer from Jesus to the Father. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, that's the Father, and Jesus, he's talking about himself, who's the Christ, the Messiah, whom you sent. God sent Jesus, because he loved the world, and he didn't want the world to perish. And so that tells us, basically, the main purpose of Christianity. Now, just so you'll understand, that prayer in John chapter 17 is in three parts. And Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, prays first for himself, and then he prays for his existing disciples, and then he prays for us, those to come. And so this represents us. Christianity is represented in a person whose name is Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of this man who claimed deity. Jesus is the God-man who took on the sins of the world and claimed to be the only way to heaven. One of the songs that we were able to worship with said that this morning. The symbol that most represents Jesus and all he stands for is not a fish symbol on a car, which is fine, nor it is a dove, which normally you see when you come to a Calvary chapel, uh, and that's, that's a good thing. The dove represents the Holy Spirit, uh, but it's a cross. That's the sign of Christianity, the most important sign of all. The cross was an instrument of death. The death of Jesus is the thing that Christians are to remember more than anything when it comes to our commitment to Jesus Christ. When we say the word cross, 
We're not to think of a work of art made of precious metal that's somewhere as a, uh, an earring or a necklace that is clean and shiny and attractive. That's fine. The cross was an instrument of death the ugliest and cruelest form of capital punishment ever imagined by human beings. Most people in Jesus' day had seen the crucified attached to their crosses on the outskirts of their towns to, reward, to remind them they better not, better not do anything against the Roman government. If we understand the reality of the cross, then we realize just how radical the call to follow Jesus really is. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Then he said, Jesus said, to them all, those who were following him at the time, whoever wants to be my disciple, the word means learner, the word means one who is committed to another one and is totally committed to that person. So he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. That's probably the hardest part of the whole thing. We live in a culture today that's all about ourselves. Life isn't about me, and we must deny ourselves. And then it says we take up our cross daily. That means we die to ourselves to follow Jesus. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, Jesus says, for me will save it. And then this is the most known part of this passage. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Actually, most of us are used to a version that would say to lose our soul. Our soul is ourself. And so what good would it be to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit ourselves? This is so important to understand. Paul put it this way in the book of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 14. He said, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord, whose name is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, through which the world has been crucified to me, Paul says, and I to the world. He's saying, I'm dead to the world. And Paul's defining definition of Christianity is Galatians 2.20, which is a memory verse for many Christians, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. I'm now dead in a sense, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body that God has given me stewardship over, I live by faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me, and that's the cross. Now, some time ago, I read an article about a man who was diagnosed as suffering from stage four cancer with little time left. He was asked how he felt about that. And he said that he was not giving up on treatment, but, quoting him, I, I'm just not as interested in my pension as I used to be. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I'm just not as interested in the world or the things of the world as I used to be. So when someone says, and we've all heard this saying, the main thing is to see that the main thing remains the main thing, and when someone asks us what the main thing is, we can say it is the cross, the death of Jesus Christ in space and time 2,000 plus years ago. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, we have a, a mood change again. I wonder when I'm going through these writings of Paul, I always wonder, uh, since I know he's quoting this to someone who's writing it all down, how often he took a break. And, and how long were his breaks? Did he spend like 12 hours in one day doing all this? Or did he spend periods of one or two hours? Did he do a little bit every day or a lot every day? Uh, I don't know for sure, but I know you can tell by the grammar in the original language, you can tell that his mood sometimes changes quickly. And the way he says things changes quickly. And here we have a dramatic mood change, like we did last time, if you were here last week, but this is a different kind of uh, mood change, and it's kind of scary in a sense. So here's what he says to the Corinthian Christians. He's writing this. It's going to be on a scroll, and they're going to read it to their congregation. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings. Now stop there. Sometimes one word is very, very important. Here's my goal for the next minute or two. My goal is that you'll never say to somebody, I go to church, or I'm going to church. Uh, I, I want you to not think about what we do that way. Because people who go to church, they uh, know what time it starts. They get there approximately on time. We're pretty good at that here, actually. And they maybe save a seat or something. And then they go in and they sit down and they, uh, are listen, they do their stand-up for the worship like we do. Uh, and then sit down and maybe get a pen out and, or their iPad or something and get ready to take some notes for the sermon. And then the song, there's a final song. And then after the final song, there's a prayer. And then exit and get out of the parking lot as fast as they can because they've now gone to church. Now, you may think, well, what's that all about? Well, the word is better translated gathering. And you might think that I'm making much ado out of nothing, but I'm not. The early church gathered together. A family gathers together. And that's the way we're to see opportunities to be with each other as a gathering. On Monday of last week, somebody invited us to a gathering, my Valerie, Valerie and I, to a gathering at their home uh, for Labor Day gathering. And we were told the gathering will start at somewhere around 1 o'clock. You can get there a little before or after. It doesn't matter. And, uh, and we'd like you to gather. We're going to have some people there that you don't know that you'll meet for the first time. And so we went to the gathering, and we met some people, and we spent some time there. And while we were eating together and talking to one another and sharing with one another, little kids were playing uh, with their stuff all over the floors, and it was just a great time. Nobody, had, there was no sign that said... Uh, and you have to leave by 3.32. No, we were gathering together for Monday afternoon for as long as it was good for us to gather together. And several hours later, over time, different people left at different times. And then Valerie and I uh, took advantage of staying to the very end to see if there's any food left over. No, I, I'm only kidding. But the, the church gathered together. And so Paul says, in the following directives, I have no praise for your gatherings. Your gatherings do more harm than good. Literally, it reads, for you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18 says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, 
there are divisions among you. Now, I want you to know that the divisions here were class divisions, economic divisions, not theological divisions. So he says, I hear there are divisions uh, among you, and to some extent, I believe it. In other words, he's saying, it may be exaggerated some, but I really do believe it. Well, that's how 1 Corinthians started. If you might remember, we'll put it all on the screen, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10, uh, Paul opens the letter with these words. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in Corinth, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And you can almost feel his, he's pouring himself out here. My brothers and sisters, who I ministered to for a year and a half in Corinth, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, well, I follow Paul. I mean, he's the smartest guy on earth. Another, I follow Apollos. Apollos, what a preacher. He's better than Chuck Swindoll. And then another, I follow Cephas, which is Peter, which you, that's Jesus' favored. And then another says, I, I follow Christ. We human beings are a divisive group in many ways. It is seemingly impossible to find something everyone in every, any group agrees with 100%. But at the beginning of the letter... Paul warned of the divisiveness of following a specific Bible teacher to the exclusion of all others. It's okay to have a favorite Bible teacher. But now we have a different division here. For the last two weeks in the sermons, I quote a particular verse that fits here perfectly considering what Paul says next. And you should have memorized this verse by now just from hearing me quote it. Galatians 3.28. Paul's talking about where we're at together spiritually. He says there's neither Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is at all. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter if you're the richest guy around or as poor as the proverbial church mouse. Nor is there male and female. That doesn't make any difference either. For you are all one, I'm adding a word on purpose, spiritually speaking, in Christ Jesus. You belong to the family of God. You're a family gathering together. A communion service is like a reunion. And all of our services should be like that. Actually, it sounds like that when we have the greeting time, and I just love the sound of that, where we many greet together and take maximum advantage of that. But Paul goes on to say in verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's a little strange, isn't it? The divisions here have to do with their behavior, especially during the gatherings around the communion time while remembering what God has done for us in Christ, the cross. I've often had people tell me of someone they knew who, quote, accepted Jesus and are probably saved but their behavior hasn't changed. But Paul said in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is, I've underlined this on purpose, it is the power of God. 
that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And we have to believe the book of John, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of John is full of the word believe. To whoever believes to those, uh, they can become Christians. We have to believe. And first, in priority, Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, came as a Jew to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles, that's everybody else in the world. It's a powerful gospel. He also says in 2 Corinthians that when we are saved, when we do believe, we become new creations. He actually uses the word creation. Some of your Bibles would say new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And uh, so spiritually speaking, it's like we're, we're remade completely. Now, that doesn't mean we immediately become perfect, but it must mean that since we also receive the Holy Spirit, our salvation should be becoming more and more obvious to everyone so our behavior will show our differences and where we're at. Our behavior, again, not perfection, changes, and everyone can see we are now becoming different. Jesus said this would manifest itself even in family divisions where he said, you know, fathers will be against daughters and, and all of that. There'd be family divisions. I had that happen to me in our extended family when I became a Christian. Some thought that, that well, I'd get over it, and they didn't like me in the, for a while in the meantime. Uh, Paul anticipated that Jesus could return at any time, and when he returns, will be made perfect. But in the meantime, there will be divisions that demonstrate our level of commitment to Jesus. So verse 20, so then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. There's a couple of cultural things will help you here. First, the Lord's Supper. All of the meetings of the early church, at least the majority of them, were at nighttime, in the evenings. The reason for that is that uh, the Jews had a, what we call a seven-day week that we're used to. They did have a Sabbath, but uh, the Romans had their community, and that's where most people made their living from, and the Romans had a 10-day stretch rather than a seven-day stretch, and there were no days off. So if you're going to meet, you're going to have to meet later at night. And so Paul is saying, so when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're having in this evening time that you eat. And by the way, they normally had a communion experience, this, what we call a communion service, as part of whatever their meeting was almost every time they met. But in this case, rather than honoring the Lord, they were more concerned about themselves. It was a status thing the haves and the have-nots. It was the practice of the church in Corinth to have a meal together before celebrating the Lord's Supper itself. It was a time to gather in someone's home and share food while remembering the meaning of communion. The rich, of course, had much leisure time, and they would often start early with lots of food and lots of wine and lots of time. But then the workers and the slaves, which made up the majority of the church would arrive straight from their jobs, hot, sweaty, and hungry, and with a little food. It was the custom of the day for rich people to separate themselves from the poor, even in their houses, when it came time to eat. Now, clearly, this was happening during the gatherings. 
some poor people were going hungry, and amazingly, amazingly, others, the rich, were even getting drunk. Paul could hardly believe all this. If there's any service that clearly represents the equality of the meaning of following Jesus, it must be at the Lord's Supper, where we realize we're all sinners needing salvation regardless of status. So Paul is pretty hot here in verse 21. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. The picture of somebody just gorging and drinking. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in before you come here? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? When he talks about the church of God, he's talking about the people. So you despise the, the, the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Here's Paul's point. The gathering that included communion is of all gatherings the one that demands the clearest picture of unity. No rich or poor, but the sharing of life together. I mean, just rereading just part of what Paul says, you can just feel it. Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And Paul's real answer is reviewing the meaning and the purpose of the meal Jesus inaugurated during his last Passover when the disciples, with the disciples before he went to the cross. Starts at verse 23. Some of you heard this so many times in our church here at the communions, you can probably tell me what it says. Verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord... From the Lord, direct revelation, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, that word betrayed has always stopped me because it tells us something about Jesus that's more than just remarkable. This was his last Passover. The disciples didn't realize that, but this was it before the cross. And at the Passover service, someone prayed. The person sort of in charge, which would be Jesus, prayed for everything. And in front of him, there at this Passover, right with him, was a man named Judas. And he already knew what Judas was going to do. And if it was me, quite frankly, uh, I'd revive some of my old judo moves and Judas would be gone. <laughs> I mean... But Jesus treated Judas as well as he treated everybody else at the table and clearly gave him an opportunity after opportunity to not betray him. But Judas was going to betray him. It's an amazing picture of being with someone uh, that, that is literally going to betray you to death. I can't even imagine it. And knowing that, and yet Jesus still went through with all that he was going to do. So he took bread, verse 24 says... Remember, Paul is saying this is what Jesus told him. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. He'd take it into pieces. And he said, 
This is my body. Uh, I know this little bit of a controversial verse in some circles. It represents his body. That's pretty clear here. So he's saying, this represents my body, which is for you. Now, that's quite a statement. The disciples have to be looking at one another. What's he talking about here? So this is my body, which is for you. Do this, what we're doing right now, in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying, without saying it exactly, this is my memorial service. Oh, they didn't know, of course. They didn't get it. But verse 25, he says, in the same way after supper, Paul says, Jesus took the cup, the third uh, cup. It was at the end of the supper. And he's saying, this cup. Now, it was a well-known symbol when you take the cup the way he did of suffering. And remember, this is a Passover service. So the mindset of everybody at the Passover service of the disciples was one of slavery and freedom. They were in Egypt. They were slaves. Moses and Aaron came along. Uh, God had Moses tell Pharaoh, finally, he wouldn't let the people go. And he says that there's going to be the death angels going to come by and the firstborn and every house is going to die, except those in the Jewish community who put a cross. He doesn't say that, but that's sort of the picture. Who kill an innocent lamb and put the blood in the lentils of their house in a way that it's almost like a cross. And then when the death angel came along, he passed over their homes and nobody died. And then, of course, they were able to go through the Red Sea and the manna and, the, and all of that that goes on that we talked about last week as they were uh, going through the sea and, and were now free from Pharaoh and Pharaoh and his whole army were drowned. That's what everybody's thinking of here. So Jesus says, this cup, really of suffering... Uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, a covenant in the Bible is an agreement between God and his people. And a covenant is always ratified by the blood of an innocent animal. And so that's why John the Baptist says when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so here we have him saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That means death, his death. He was going to die. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And they're all looking at each other. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, he says, this is what Paul said that he was revealed to him. The Lord's death until he comes. So he's saying to the disciples at that meal, you reclaim my death until I return. That's what he's saying. Now remember, Paul is upset at the Corinthians' behavior toward each other during the Lord's Supper. They should have been remembering the cost of their free salvation while realizing the necessity of obvious unity among them regardless of the status or any other distinction. It has to be that the eternal change in their lives and the expectation of Jesus' return causes one another love among them that would be obvious to everyone. Verse 27. So then, so then, Paul says, 
whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, this is, these are Paul's words, not what Jesus said. So whoever eats the bread, you Corinthians, or drinks the cup of the Lord in a non-worthy manner, we're all unworthy, of course, and then you don't come to communion service trying to make yourself worthy. You're unworthy, and that's why we can come to communion, because God sees us as, as worthy because of the blood of Christ. But he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a non-worthy manner, what he's saying here, failing to show love and forgiveness and unity, that's an unworthy manner. That's what was happening. Well, be, be guilty of sinning, this is really powerful, against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, the body of Christ is the church. The body of Christ, that's us. We're the body of Christ. And the blood of the Lord is the cross. And so if we're going to take communion in a non-worthy manner, if we're going to even come to church with unforgiveness in our hearts and failing to show love and unity, uh, what we're doing is we're sinning against one another. We're the church. And we're sinning against one another who have been saved by the cross, by the blood of the Lord. And therefore, Paul says in verse 28, and this is something that isn't emphasized enough, and it's my fault, at communion, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, he's saying communion is a time of self-examination and repentance and confession of sin. Now look at verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, without caring at all about the others, oh, it's time for communion, just give me a little bit of, I'll drink this and I'll eat this and then I'm done. No, no, he says, those who eat and drink without discerning each other, the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now this is scary. That's why many among you in Corinth are weak and sick, and a, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for they died. But if, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. In other words, if we did examine ourselves, we wouldn't come under such judgment. Nevertheless, in verse 32, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined. Now, this is really something. Being disciplined. God disciplines his own children, disciplines those he loves. Uh, and uh, so without God's discipline, we would be in a lot of trouble because none of us are perfect. We're aiming to perfection. We'll get that when we get to heaven. We need God's discipline. A good father and mother will discipline their children or they'll grow up to be monsters. And so uh, he says, uh, therefore, nevertheless, we are when we're judged in this way by the Lord, we're being disciplined. Why are we being disciplined? So that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Now, that's really important to understand. This is not, some of these people were literally dying because of their wrong attitude to the body of Christ, were sick, but this wasn't, they weren't going to lose their salvation, but they were going to be disciplined because God has a purpose for the church. And sometime he will discipline the church and take some of us out uh, who are getting in the way. And, but we'll never be condemned with the world. So we're still going to be in heaven. Now, this, is, uh, this makes me think, maybe I'm not going to come to communion anymore. Uh, 
we must determine individually and collectively to do all in our power to demonstrate our love for one another visibly. And I believe the communion service is the best place of all to determine that. If we understand the real meaning behind the Lord's Supper, then we would never cause any division in the church. And we would do whatever it takes to grow in love for other Christians. Cast God bold. Now, most of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but a few of you do. We all know here Rick and Elizabeth in Senegal and their incredible ministry there. And we've got many of you have gone there to Senegal to be part of that ministry. Elizabeth was Cash Godbold's, one of his daughters. Cash Godbold was over 20 years in the Sahara Desert with the Toreg people. He's one of the toughest men I ever met in my life. He's in heaven now, and he uh, was one of the first elders in our church. And when we started the church, he knew that this, in those days, very young pastor didn't even have a clue what he was doing, and Cash was not the normal kind of person. He let me know he knew that. And he told me, he says, I can hear his deep, deep voice, you have no idea what's in store for you. You have no idea the trouble you're going to be in. And I can remember thinking, well, he was just a missionary. What does he know? I was a businessman. You know, all that kind of stuff. He would, do, and when we first started, he did the communion service. And I still remember the first one. I'll never forget it. I thought it was going to be a catastrophe. Here we are, cash is up in front of everybody. There was, you know, less than 100 of us there. And uh, he's standing in front of us all, and he's explaining communion to us in his deep voice. And then we get to this one part of the communion service, and he says, now, before we go on here and actually take the elements, some of you are holding grudges and unforgiveness and stuff uh, toward other people. And so what I want you to do is just take a moment right now and think about those people in your life that you need to be reconciled to, and make sure you take communion, and then when the service is over, as quick as you can find them, you need to go face-to-face and reconcile with them. And I thought, well, that's, that's a good exhortation. But then the next thing he said, I thought, this is the end of the church. He says, now we're going to take a little more quiet time, uh, and here's what we're going to do, he says, before we actually take the communion. Even right here among us, some of you are having some difficulties with some, of the, some other people, right here in the service. He says, I want you to humble yourself. We're all going to be praying. And you go and get down on your knees in front of that person that's here, and you make it right. And I'm like, no, don't say that. Nobody will come back to the church. You know? And all I can tell you is that there were more than one reconciliation. It was an amazing thing. And that's what it's supposed to be like. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We don't hold... We're Christians. We don't hold grudges. We don't bother wallowing in our offense when somebody does us wrong. Jesus talked about that a lot. Now, sometimes a person will refuse communion thinking they're being spiritual and are not worthy. And I want to say this kindly, but that's rebellion. To experience God's cleansing forgiveness, we simply need to humble ourselves, admitting wrong and accepting God's inestimable grace while forgiving others as God has forgiven us. Jesus died a horrible death to make that possible. To become a Christian, we must understand the grace of God. Grace means undeserved favor. We're getting what we don't deserve. No one is good enough to go to heaven. 
and the mercy of God rather than the justice. We don't get justice, we get mercy, forgiveness. And, and we don't get the justice, we deserve the justice, but God gives us mercy instead. Jesus took on the justice for us. So because of God's grace and mercy toward me, how could I refuse the same toward another regardless of what has been done to me? Forgiveness knows no bounds. Now look at verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, Paul writes, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Same food for the rich and the poor and share. That's what he's saying. This is what he's saying. This is the problem here. And anyone who is hungry, and here's the idea behind this, anyone who is gorging yourself and over-drinking should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment, in discipline. So again, keep in mind, Paul is not talking about the final judgment, and this judgment, this discipline need not happen. If we take the message of the cross seriously, forgiving those who have offended us and treating each other with equal love and kindness because of grace and mercy, without God's discipline, our church would become ineffective and we would miss out on so much God has for us. So the communion service is the time to come and tell God how much we need him. And if we're not doing well spiritually... Or if we become less than obedient in our Christian lives, the communion service is the place to be. That is the place to experience 1 John 1.9, uh, one of my favorite memory verses. If we confess our sins, Christians, because we all still sin, then he is on an ongoing basis. He is faithful and just and will continually forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We're to live that kind of a confessional life. We must gather often, not just during a communion service, but at teaching times like this and fellowship opportunities and women's conferences and men's steak dinners or the shrimp feast coming up, which you hear about next week. Let's never forget who we are and why we are free, forgiven, destined for eternity. We should, we must, Always walk away from the Lord's Supper and all our gatherings feeling completely forgiven and free. In the meantime, the Lord's Supper pictures the whole story of the gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection, and the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our next communion gathering will be the first Wednesday in October. We had communion last Wednesday, so don't miss it. You're invited by the Lord himself. Chuck Swindoll ends his sermon on this passage with these words. When celebrating the Lord's Supper, how are your table manners? Do you eat with unwashed hands? Do you share the meal grudgingly? Remember what this family reunion represents. Enjoy it with wholehearted thanksgiving and observe it with appropriate reverence. Most of all, enjoy it together, having sought forgiveness and secured reconciliation with those in the body of Christ you may have wronged, unquote. And then the last sentence in the chapter reads, And when I come, Corinthians, he's saying, 
I will give further directions. Now, we're not sure exactly what Paul may be referring to regarding further directions, but he may be referring to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we'll study next week. Spiritual gifts underline the need for us to be one another people, loving each other regardless of our differences. I watched a sermon last Thursday by Alistair Begg, and he made this statement. We are always better together than we could ever be on our own. We are a body. We're a family. We're linked together because of the cross. So let's show the world how much we truly love one another even when some of us fail. That's when the others come alongside and pick us up again so we can return the favor again and again and again. Let's pray. Stand with me. Father, I thank you for the part of the church we call Calvary Chapel of Sarasota and for the amazing people that you have brought together here, Father. When I think of the, uh, the beginnings of our church and, and uh, think of Cash's words where he told me that I didn't have any idea what the, the troubles I was going to be in, he was so right, and I'm so thankful for them, Father, because they've made us together into the kind of church that truly is loving one another. And Father, there may be among us some who are holding grudges or unforgiveness. Uh, please speak to them directly. Uh, and and uh, Father, even in prayer, I'm exhorting them, but praying to you, uh, make it right. It doesn't matter whose fault it was or who's right or who's wrong. That's secondary. Those things can be worked out but we have to be willing to forgive one another and then continue to gather together and minister and use our gifts, Father. And uh, you've just shown that to be so real for so many people in our, in our congregation here today. I'm so inspired by what has been happening. And so, Father, help us to realize the importance of living out our salvation. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or you're watching online and you don't know him personally, then you just simply need to say, I'm a sinner. I want Jesus to come into my life. I believe he lived and died and rose again, that he was God, and he died for me. And if you pray a prayer that sounds anything like that and mean it, then he will reach you. And then you'll be changed and be changing, and we'll see the differences in you as time goes by. So, Father, thank you for your love and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.